Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We've got two readings this evening. Um, We're going to start in the Old Testament um, with a reading from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. And you'll find this on page 724 in the Church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 40 the very bottom of page 724, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And now we are going to read from Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And you'll find that on page 1002. Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet... I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Penny, and good evening. It's wonderful to see you all here tonight. Um, We'll be looking at both readings tonight, but let's uh, begin in Mark chapter 1, so page 1002 in the Church Bibles. You might find it helpful to have that in front of you as we go. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, as we've just been singing, we long to see the glory of Jesus. And so we pray now, as we look at your word together, we ask that you'd open our eyes, protect us from the kind of reading and listening which 
leads to no lasting value, but do a deep work in us, we pray, by your Spirit. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As Justin mentioned, we're thinking about good news tonight, and it is very hard to live life without good news. Life is simply too difficult. Life is often so tiring and discouraging and confusing and disappointing. We need good news to lift our hearts, to sustain us, to to keep us going. And so as we begin a new academic year, I want to ask each of us a question. What good news are we holding out for? For some of us, it might be good news about a particularly big thing in our lives. We might be waiting for the news of some test results to come back, and we're hoping they'll be negative. Perhaps we're hoping that our house will finally sell, or that at last one of our job applications will lead to to an actual job. Maybe it's the start of a new relationship that we long to begin. Maybe it's something more mundane. England to win the World Cup. I mean, they can win with 14 men. Imagine how good they'd be with 15. We'll find out. Uh, Maybe it's just a nice meal with friends. Maybe a chance to go shopping, to buy some nice clothes. Just little hits of good news to help us get through a hard time. Or maybe we don't know what it is. There's a restlessness. We're searching for some good news in our lives, and we don't even quite know what it is. And so we find ourselves scrolling through social media, scanning the internet, looking for new experiences, new friendships, new opportunities, just trying to find something new and good that will lift us and keep us going. Well, as Justin said tonight, we begin a new series in Mark's Gospel. And over the next two months, we'll work through the first two chapters, and straight away, Mark announces his message for us. Verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It's like a trumpet blast or like a, a town crier shouting out with a message that has to be heard. It's good news about Jesus. Maybe we're new to Christian things and we find it surprising that the claim would be that Jesus is good news. That's not how our world sees him today. I hope you'll come back over this series to find out why Mark says that he is such good news. But many of us here tonight, we, we are Christians. We, do, we are persuaded he is good news, and yet it's so easy to develop spiritual cataracts over our eyes. There could be a frosting over, a fogginess to our vision. And so as we look at Jesus, we don't see the glory that he has. We see a dull version, which leaves us feeling unmoved by the goodness of his message and what he's done. Or to put it another way, uh, as a church family this year, we have a, a verse for the year. Um, So in a different part of the Bible, in Philippians chapter 1, our verse is this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember that verse from earlier on 
uh, this year to those of us around. That verse is saying that Christ is better to us than life itself. And we need a big view, a glorious view of the good news about Jesus to be able to say that verse with real integrity. And so come, let us come and see what Mark has to say about the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, Tonight and next week are really Mark's introduction to his themes. There's so much more he will say during the whole gospel. But he wants to draw us in, to make us hungry to hear more about the good news concerning Christ. And he does this by giving us three witnesses, three voices that proclaim the glory of the good news about Jesus. Tonight we'll see the first two witnesses. Next week we'll see the third witness. So let's dive into our text before us. Two points tonight. In Jesus, the Lord has come to his people. The first witness that Mark calls is the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Actually, that is a quote from, from Malachi, not Isaiah. And that quote from Malachi explains the role of John the Baptist. We'll get to him in just a moment. Mark is setting this scene for the focus that he wants us to get to, his main quote, which, true to his word, is from Isaiah. And it's there in verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. A few months ago, we were um, on a journey driving around Birmingham on the motorway, and um, it's a journey we've made quite a few times before, and if I may, it's not a particularly spectacular journey. Um, but this time, as we drove around the motorway, we, we saw a site that did grab our attention. On both sides of the motorway, there was a huge amount of building work taking place. Maybe you've seen it. Thousands of tons of earth and rubble being shifted all around. There was a, a big ramp being built over here. There's a big depression being filled in over there. And signs of a, of a bridge being built to go across the motorway. And the sign told us what was happening. Work being done to prepare the way for HS2. And here in Mark 1, that's the sense that we have. Verse 3 describes a building project taking place, a way being prepared, not for Londoners to travel to Birmingham, but for the Lord to travel to his people. The Lord is the special name for the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the one true God, the God of Genesis 1 that we're looking at here in the mornings, the creator who flung the stars into space And who brought order out of chaos, the all-powerful, all-knowing, righteous, pure, holy God. The prophets, including Isaiah, looked forward to a day of glory. A day when that Lord himself would come to his people. And Mark is saying that in the man Jesus, from some backwater town called Nazareth up north in Galilee 
that this longed-for moment of glory has come to pass. In Jesus, the Lord is come to his people. This helps to explain the titles given to Jesus in verse 1. He's called the Messiah. Uh, that's not a surname, by the way. That's a, a job title. A bit like Bob the Builder. A bit like Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah means God's special king, the longed-for king to come, and it's Jesus. But end of verse 1, he's not simply a human king, he's also the son of God, the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, taken on a human nature in the person of Jesus. And so have you ever wondered what it would look like for the one true God of the universe to come to his people and to appear on the stage of human history. Well, Mark says, come and look. Look at Jesus. And right at the end of Mark's gospel, a Gentile Roman centurion will watch Jesus die and he will cry out, Surely this man was the Son of God. He's got it right. And that is the response Mark wants from us as we go through his account of the good news of Jesus. And so straight away, here is good news for us all on this Sunday evening at the start of a new term. Into the mundane routines of everyday life, with all the stresses and strains and challenges of living in a fallen world, the news that God has come to his people. But this good news becomes even more wonderful when we realize the context of the quote from Isaiah. And so if you can keep a finger in Mark 1, now do flick back to that first reading. It's on page 724 in our church Bibles. Because this is the, the Old Testament context of the quote that Mark gives us in his gospel. Page 724. Like Mark's gospel, Isaiah 40 begins with a trumpet blast of good news. Verse 1, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Why? Well, verse 2 explains. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. Isaiah is prophesying around about 700 BC, 700 years before the days of Jesus. And he is speaking into an incredibly painful moment in the history of the people of God. For hundreds of years, the people of God have been in spiritual decline. Generation after generation, faithless and rebellious against the Lord. And they've been aided by a series of poor leaders who have led them astray in their leadership. And in Isaiah, God says to his people, enough is enough. You're going to go into exile. 
He's going to raise up the Babylonians to come and destroy Jerusalem, carry off the people, and they will go off into a foreign land, not their own. It's going to be a national disaster. And into that context, Isaiah 40 comes. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Because the hard service of the exile won't last forever. And even more amazingly, God is going to find a way to pay for the sins of the people. But during the exile, for a time, it did feel to God's people as if God had turned his back on them, that he had abandoned them and forsaken them. But only for a time. Verse 3 describes the Lord rushing back across the desert, rushing back to his sinful people, rushing back to heal their wounds and deal with their sin, rushing back to say the relationship is still on. Elsewhere in Isaiah, just as a mother cannot abandon her nursing child, so the Lord cannot bear to abandon his helpless and sinful people. But here's the thing, right? Isaiah was 700 years before Jesus. And for 700 years, the promise of Isaiah had hung hanging in history with no answer. Yes, the people had come back from exile, but the Lord had not yet come rushing back over the desert to be with his people. Would he come? It's the stuff of Hollywood films, isn't it? Imagine the happy couple. And then disaster because the wife meets someone else and has an affair. And the husband finds out. And his heart is broken. And he's angry. And he, and he, he can't stand it. He, he just leaves. He rushes off and, he, and he's gone. And the wife thinks, what have I done? She wants her husband back, but he's gone. And so Day after day, she goes to the window and sits and looks out down the road, wondering if he will come. Will he turn up? That is the mood into which Mark, 700 years later, writes his account. And Mark says, he's come. The Lord has come back to his people. He's sinful rebellious, helpless people. So back to Mark 1. If you've lost your way, it's on page 1002. In Jesus, the Lord has come to his people. And for us tonight, can I just say, here is God's heart towards ruined sinners. The people of Isaiah's day and the church today, me and all of us here tonight, we don't deserve the Lord to come back. But such is his heart that when he sees our sin, rather than abandoning us, he comes rushing to us at just the right time in the person of Jesus. And it's a wonder, isn't it? All our rebellion against him 
all our unfaithfulness, all our self-centeredness, but instead of turning from us, he has come rushing to us. In Jesus, the Lord has come to his people. Second, to bring true forgiveness. To bring true forgiveness. Royal visits require lots of preparation. Uh, growing up, I remember when Princess Diana uh, came to visit a charity next door to our house. And there were weeks of preparations to get ready for her visit. There were all kinds of security checks that were done behind the scenes. Uh, all the, the flowers, the paintwork all spruced up and manicured. On the day of her visit, there were rows and rows of, of gates and steel bars and all kinds of fencing to protect the crowd and so on. There were police cars and sirens and flashing lights everywhere because there was going to be a, a royal visit. But what about when the one true God of the universe comes to visit his people? How do you prepare for that? Well, verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here is John playing his role. He is the messenger uh, predicted by Malachi. He would come before the Lord to prepare the way. And he prepares the way by talking about sin and the need to repent. And straight away, here in Mark's gospel, we're being told why Christ has come. If he had come to be a political leader, the kind of Messiah to stir up a, a rebellion against the Roman Empire, then John the Baptist would have prepared the way by passing out political tracts to the crowds. If Jesus had come first and foremost to heal the sick, then John would have invited all those who were sick to come and queue up and wait for Jesus to come and heal them. If Christ had come mainly to be a wise teacher, then John would have said, text your questions in. I'll pass them on, and Christ will come and give you a, a, an ultimate answer to your question. But he doesn't. He prepares the way for the coming of Jesus by calling people to acknowledge their sin. Because Jesus has come to bring true forgiveness. And John's message had a big impact at verse five. In Mark one, verse five, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Look, I suspect Mark is using a, a touch of hyperbole here. And yet it is a stunning scene, isn't it? Just imagine it. Crowds of people heading out of Jerusalem, taking the dusty, dry, hot route out into the wilderness with one purpose, to be baptized. And as far as I can tell, in first century Judea, the only people who normally got baptized were Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And people who were on the outside, who knew that they were unclean and wanted to come in and be clean, and baptism then was a sign for them of cleansing and welcome and entry into God's people. And the stunning thing in John's ministry is that Jewish people who were already in 
who thought that they were already clean, they're the ones who are streaming out into the wilderness to get baptized. And I think the point is that sin is not simply a Gentile problem or a Jewish problem. It is a human problem. It's not a particularly popular message today. Uh, In recent years, our culture has told us that we need to look inside ourselves to discover who we are. And having done that internal searching for identity and value, our job is then to come out into the world and broadcast who we are and our values and, and demand the world accepts us for who we've discovered ourselves to be. But here is John sporting a rather interesting wardrobe choice of camel's hair and a leather belt. Not particularly fashionable, but chosen because it was the wardrobe worn by another great prophet, Elijah, in the Old Testament. If you're taking notes, 2 Kings chapter 1. And John the Baptist knows that he is the second Elijah who was promised. Another and final great prophet sent by God to bring God's word to God's people. And Elijah speaks with that authority from God as a prophet. And John's message is that our culture has it back to front. We don't need to look inside ourselves to discover our values, but rather we need to look outside ourselves to the one true, holy, righteous, blameless God and to find out from him what he wants from us. It is not our place to demand other people accept us. It is our place to beg for mercy from him. From what I can tell from church history, every great revival of the church has always included, right at its core, a fresh conviction of the very point John the Baptist is making in the wilderness, a message about the need to be forgiven of our sins. And without that conviction, we will never understand why this coming of Jesus is such good news. But look at how John puts it in verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. It was the job of the lowest slave to stoop down and untie the straps of his master's Sandal And John, great as he is, the final great prophet, even he knows that he's not worthy to bow down and do that most lowest of tasks for the one to come, the Lord Jesus. Why? Verse 8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, um, up here at the front, I've got a, um, a bottle of water. I hope you can see at the back that it's not particularly clean water. I think even Bear Grylls would shudder at the thought of drinking this, uh, this water. It's completely disgusting and filthy. Now, I could take this uh, glass bottle full of this disgusting water. My, my, my desire is to clean the water, to clean the inside. I could take it to a, a sink. And I could run it under the tap. I could dip it in. I could scrub it and wash it on the outside and scrub away and polish it. But of course, I'm not going to make the outside, well, my outside will be clean, but I'm not going to change the inside at all. 
the problem with this water is on the inside of the glass, not the outside. And that kind of external washing will do nothing. And John's baptism out in the desert is like that external washing. It was baptism in, in normal water that could wash away outside filth, but it could do nothing about the state of the inside. Our hearts, our spiritual uncleanness. And what John is saying in verse eight is that the one who's gonna come after him, the, the greater one, his baptism won't be an external baptism, washing on the outside. It will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which talks about the inside, what's on the inside of us, our hearts, our sin. And when Christ comes, he will bring his spirit that will bring about a great and new work in us to bring about change and a cleansing. The Old Testament prophets longed for the day. Isaiah 44 verse 3, if you're taking notes, talked about a day when God would pour out his spirit on all people and it would be a day of new life and new growth. Well, John is saying, in Christ, that day has come. And that deep internal work of cleansing is going to happen through that ministry. I know in my own experience of being a Christian that one of the reasons why my love for the Lord at times can be cool and wavering is when I stop seeing how big a problem my sin is. Not just the sins before I became a Christian, but the sins I go on committing as a Christian, day in, day out. It is easy, isn't it? You've been a Christian for a while. If that's true of you, then you know this. I think that it's easy to justify, to brush away, belittle, downplay, ignore our ongoing sins, even as a Christian. And when that happens, the offer of the baptism of the Spirit, which is the true experience of any true Christian, that brings conviction of our sin and a washing in our hearts that comes through the work of Christ, when our view of sin is small, our heart response to that good news, that offer becomes small as well. It becomes quite good news, not the best news in the world. Another reason why my love can grow cold is when I forget the awesome holiness of the Lord. In the Old Testament, at one point, God came down from heaven and, and dwelt on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And when he dwelled there, the people at the bottom of the mountain were so terrified of his presence at the top that they wouldn't come near the mountain. They were petrified. And later on in the Old Testament, when God came to live in the, in the tabernacle and then in the temple, only the high priest could enter once a year, lest he be killed. The presence of the Lord is holy and awesome and dangerous and wonderful and scary all at once. And yet here in Mark 1 verse 8, the promise is that we will be baptized with the Holy Spirit that the one true God will put his spirit in the hearts and lives of true Christians, that the holy, awesome God of the Old Testament will come and dwell in us. And Jesus, through his death on the cross and the cleansing he brings, 
is the one who can mediate that new relationship between us and a holy God such that God can dwell in us by his spirit without consuming us. And when we have a small view of God's holiness, we are unamazed at the promise of Mark 1 verse 8. Well, look, our time is up. It's very hard to live through this life without good news. I don't know what you're holding on for when it comes to good news. But I do know this. We will find no better news anywhere in the world around us that brings no more comfort than the news of Jesus. Because in Jesus, the Lord has come to his people to bring true forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only son, your beloved son, you sent him into the world, a world that is hostile and against you. You sent him to die on the cross for us, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Father, help us to believe and help us to speak of him to a desperate world. In his name we pray. Amen.